This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. You probably consider yourself a Christian, especially if you're listening to this Gospel Bound podcast or watching us on YouTube. But I can bet that you have questions about Christianity. You might even doubt aspects of Christianity. If not, well, I'm almost certain that you know someone who does, and maybe you'll want to share this podcast episode with them. Whether you've believed for as long as you can remember, you're doubting right now, it can actually be comforting to know that the faith journey rarely looks simple. The journey is full of twists and turns. Politics, sexuality, family, and religious experience, they all push us to and fro, especially in the critical years of, of maturation in adolescence and early adulthood. Over 40 years, Randy Newman has heard hundreds of stories about people coming to faith. He brings that experience to bear in his new book, Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt, published by Crossway with the Gospel Coalition. Randy is Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He was formerly on staff with CREW, ministering in and near Washington, D.C. And he joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss motives, plausibility, certainty, and doubt, among other topics. Randy, it's good to see you again. Thanks for joining me. Uh, it's good to be with you. Thanks so much. Now, Randy, you write in this book that people approach faith with many motives, not just one. Uh, let me give you a test case. I, I saw some debate among evangelists after a recent high-profile conversion. They said that this convert should have converted, converted only for sheer love of Jesus in response to the gospel. But what she'd actually said was that she said a concern for the decline and eclipse of Western civilization. I'm wondering, wouldn't many motives of coming to faith potentially conflict with exclusive focus on the gospel and God? Wow. Um, well, that would, that, that's an interesting thing. She should convert only for, how did you word it again? I'm sorry, only for well, sheer love? Yeah, essentially that we can only be considering in the response to the gospel, the gospel itself, not necessarily any other motivations that might have gotten us there. So the fact right. that she was saying, hey, I'm becoming a Christian in part, maybe even in large part, because I'm concerned about the state of Western civilization, and I've come to realize that Christianity is the only hope of civilization. Is that a problem, or is that what you're talking about in terms of some of these indirect journeys of faith? 
Yeah, well, um, I think people come to all sorts of things with a mix of motivations and and many motivations. And that was one of the things I wanted the reader to consider early on. Maybe we approach this thing with a mix of motives. And in fact, I, I think we all do. I, I, we all would like to have pure motives, but I, I don't know if any of us ever have pure motives. It's always mixed. And so early on in the process, I want to encourage people to think maybe maybe my motives in this are not just intellectual inquiry, um, uh, that I'm an objective thinker. We all come to this with emotional concerns, uh, social concerns. We're concerned about how we fit into the larger society. So, um, I mean, eventually, ultimately, when people come to faith, they have to come to grips with who was Jesus and what did his death on the cross mean and what does it mean to repent and believe. But, uh, but getting there comes from a lot of twists and turns. So that was, that was a, an early point I wanted to make in the book. Let me just use my own example and you can analyze this and, and help people to understand how it relates to your book. When I look back on coming to faith at age 15, did not grow up in a, sort of fervently evangelical household by any means, but was exposed to the church, broadly speaking. Um, I remember it was a very emotional experience, a very transformative, decisive change in my thoughts and in my attitude, not necessarily always in my moral behavior, unfortunately, but there were, there were clear transformations there. But when I go back, I'm not exactly sure what kind of gospel message I was responding to <laughs> in the moment. I don't remember exactly what was said. What I do remember is a feeling of unexpected acceptance from this group of people, which became a kind of extension of an acceptance, I think, at some level with God. Is that what you're talking about, or is that problematic? Uh, no, that's very much what I'm talking about, and I, I'm certain I'm, I don't think you're alone, and I think people do. They, they look back at their experience and they go, oh, wait a minute, there were a whole lot of other things going on there. Um, that, that's just the reality of being, uh, I, I don't know, multifaceted beings. Um, uh, I love the fact that, that the gospel is talked about so many different ways in Scripture. At, at, at the core, for sure, is um substitutionary atonement i mean that's the core you can't get away from that you can't deny that but just think about there's all these other words that are all tied in there's redemption there's reconciliation there's salvation there's eternal life they all they have different facets of this really beautiful gem of the gospel and um, if the scripture talks about it so multifacetedly, well, then we shouldn't be surprised if we as people latch on in different ways and different starting points, so to speak. Well, I suppose it's also, Randy, why the starting point's not the end point, meaning that those different facets of the gospel become clearer over time, and mm -hmm. sometimes they speak to us in different ways at different points in our life. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm picking up in, in this book, Questioning Faith, uh, as I'm wondering how much of our communication of the gospel, it's never, it's never less than explicit testimony verbally to, to Jesus Christ or, or in a written form, but at the same time, you seem to indicate that there are 
other kinds of gestures that we can make that help people to understand, in part, the effects of Christianity. One of them mm-hmm. was a student who was shocked that a Bible study leader didn't check her phone when they talked. Oh, um, right, right. There are other examples that you can think of like this? Oh, Almost good. like, you know, how do we communicate what Christianity is, not just in what we say, but in how we say it, I think, in some oh, ways. Oh, sure. Um. Uh, boy. Um, well, let, let, let me just start a little bit further back, if I can. Um, you know, uh, those of us who teach about evangelism, we've, we regularly say today, given our world and given where people are, we need to start further back. Uh, sure. We need to assume less things. So it, it used to be we could start by talking about who God is and who Jesus was and what the Bible says. But there are a lot of people today who, those are just such alien concepts. We need to start further back. And that's, that's what I was trying to do in the book. I wanted to, I wanted to write a pre-evangelistic book. And so I wanted to step back with, let's, let's first talk about how do we approach this? Well, we approach it with a mix of motives. And uh, don't we all have faith in something? Every, faith is inevitable, not optional. And, you know, those kinds of pre-suppositional ideas or something. And so if that's the case, then it's probably for a lot of people a longer process and they probably, they do, they have to see more than just hearing words and ideas and concepts. They want to see, oh, this, this thing you're talking about, it's, it's really changed you. It's, it's made you kind. It's made you a better listener. It's made you a person who doesn't reject me just because I disagree with you. So there are all of these I don't, I, nonverbal is too vague of a category, but there, there are all these ways we communicate with people, not just the statements that we're making that we're asking them to agree with. So, so the book, I'm also hoping by telling all of these stories about how people came to faith, I'm hoping it also for Christians, they look at it and they go, well, how do I come across and how do I sound? And what else can I talk to people about so that I'm not always just talking about, <laughs> you know, Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. But, but other aspects of people's lives that are also part of God's sovereign plan for them uh, and for us. So I, I think that touches on the kind of things you're asking about. I've used this example many times over the years, but shortly after I graduated f- uh, from college, I did a study of evangelism in the Ivy League, and what I found was that in many cases, the um, when people were dialoguing, it was important for them to know that somebody like them also believed huh. these Christian things. Hmm. It wasn't necessarily that they needed every one of their questions answered. Oh, it was yes. important right. for them that they just knew that somebody else had considered these things and they looked up to them and they thought, oh, well, then maybe I can believe these things. <laughs> um, yes. So, so I think that's always been an important part of, of, um, of evangelism. It's not just the sort of the rational discourse. Right. But also the sub or extra or super rational feelings and intuitions that, that we have um, as well. 
Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back uh, to a story that I, I told somewhere else, but not not in this book. But it was this guy who he he was very, very smart, very intelligent. He went to a really great university and he just thought that Christians were not very smart. Right. And and he had kind of been that had been kind of the model before he got to the university. Mm-hmm. So where he grew up, it was sort of uh, whatever Christianity he saw was pretty uh, uncritical, not thinking, unintelligent, anti-intellectual. And he was really, really bright. And so eventually he got involved in this Bible study and he found that, well, no, these people are kind of smart. I mean, they're they're at the same university I am. They got into the same high caliber school. And one time he asked a question and the person gave him a very, very thoughtful, considerate answer. And he was just kind of surprised that, first of all, that they took his question seriously and that they gave a pretty decent answer. And I said to him when he was telling me this, I said, so did that satisfy the the answer to your question? And he said, well, enough. Yeah. But (laughs) what I what I figured was, oh, maybe there are answers to all of my questions because I had a whole ton of questions. And then I said, so did you ask him like a million questions? He said, no, I didn't need to. I, I realized at that point, oh. Smart people have thought about these things. Yeah. There probably are decent answers. And so he he came to faith and believed with still a whole lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. That is exactly the point that I was trying to make, but you said it much more effectively. Um, let's talk about another area that's often difficult in terms of really pre-evangelism. And this is a topic that's it's changed. I bet 40 years ago you weren't having the same conversations in the same way that you were, say, 10 years ago. But I also think, Randy, that these conversations are always shifting. It's probably different now quite a bit than it was 10 years ago. You write right. in the book that faithful heterosexual monogamy has never been easy or felt natural, but as Christians, we continue to affirm it's always been good. It'll be good tomorrow, be good forever. Now, the alternatives you observe, quote, have left countless people damaged and lonely on the name of authentic expression of their sexual identity, end quote. It feels as though for decades, certainly in the last decade, Christians have been on the defensive uh, for so long about the sexual revolution. I'm wondering, Randy, do you think we might be able to go on the offense with the sexual revolution as we see and as younger generations have experienced how much havoc has been wreaked, especially among young adults? Oh, very much so. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm wrestling though with the phrase about going on the offensive. I don't. I don't know if. Uh, I mean, well, that I mean, is the. What right I mean concept. is, what I mean is, we've been on the Christianity must be bigoted, and we're always trying to explain why it's not bigoted. What about talking about the unlivability of a sexual revolution that is destroying people? Yeah. So instead of us yeah. just saying, proving to ourselves that the sec that that we're not what secular folks think we are saying the alternatives are far worse. And that's right. very obvious in how it's playing out. That's what right. I mean. Yeah. And so I think, I think we, we can start with, you know, I don't think this is working out all that well. All of the things that we have come to assume and accept about sexuality um, is, it's not really making people happier. It's not making, it's not making their lives work very well. And uh, we don't, I don't think we need to argue all that strongly about that. I mean, I've said that to people and and it's amazing how much agreement 
the staunchest non-Christians are like, yeah, you know, this is really is messing up people's mm-hmm. lives. So that's that's the first wave, I think. And the next step, I think, is to say, you know, I I realize the Christian view about sexuality is in the minority. And in fact, it's always been considered weird. It's right. always been considered ridiculous. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's always been amazingly narrow and um, uh, just it's it's always been on the wrong side of history in a sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so then so then we're just sort of like acknowledging, you know, yeah, I realize this is hard to believe because it's so out of the the norm. But the norm isn't all that good right now. And then now, so let me tell you why I think this biblical view is really good. Here are the advantages. And if there is a God and he made us sexual beings, it would kind of make sense, wouldn't it, that he would have the idea about how this can work well. So that's the route that I I talk about and that I I want to encourage people. Um, Here, here's another another way of thinking about it. We're we're talking to people who who say, no, that's just crazy what you believe. And and there's several different beliefs in there. I mean, sexuality is just one, but there's a whole bunch. No. And we're trying to get them to yes. Yes, you really should believe this. Well, there's a big ground in the middle of maybe. Mm. And for a lot of people, I think we need to try to get them to maybe. Well, maybe, maybe it's not so crazy what you believe. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe... I need to rethink this. And for some people, budging from no to maybe, maybe the, the, the most important first steps. I think it's related to the, the point I was making earlier about that, that convert. The further we get away from Christian dominance, we see the effects of the world without Christianity. And I don't think as Christians we're surprised that it doesn't seem to be going very well when you're going against the grain of the creator. And so that's what I'm kind of wondering, especially in a post-Christian environment, we often feel as though we're having to apologize for our beliefs. Now, I think, Randy, there's something that you say in this book that I understand where you're coming from, and I've I've actually done a lot of work on this subject, including my writing and, and publishing on Charles Taylor. But you say that we all live with a mix of belief and doubt. I, I've got to imagine, Randy, that a lot of Christians still think that it's dangerous for Christians to allow or even admit doubt. Make the case. I, I think mm. that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. If you came and said, I'm doubting my Christian faith, I think people would probably panic <laughs> about yeah. that. Yeah. If, if you're saying that to a parent or to a pastor or a, another spiritual authority. So what do you mean about admitting our doubts. Well, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And some people won't accept what I'm saying. Um, um, I, I guess on a very practical level, I can say when I've shared with non-believers that I have doubts, it has actually helped them a whole lot to move forward. Because I think a lot of a lot of non-Christians think, all right, when you become a Christian, you no longer have any doubts. I can never be like that so I'm I I'm not even going to budge and move anywhere near this because I I just I got too many doubts I got too many questions, and so I've said to quite a few non Christians Oh I I still have doubts I still have questions Yeah, um, uh, I I I have I have a very high level of confidence 
that this is true and that this is good, very high level. But I don't have absolute certainty. And so I have a whole chapter on that of yeah. what if what if absolute certainty isn't necessary? Because mm-hmm. I, I just think I want to get people past that idea of, oh, you can never have doubts. Now, how do I make the case from Scripture? Well, I, um, I am kind of intrigued with... Um, um, Paul had some tremendous fear before he came to preach in Corinth. He said that uh, he said that when he looked back at it, he said, "I came to you with much fear and trembling." So that sounds like some kind of doubt, uh, at least in you know his ability to to proclaim the gospel. Um, I'm thinking about that one verse in the book of Jude where we're told, uh, "Be merciful to those who doubt." Now, again, people could see that as only outsiders, non-believers, so maybe that doesn't make the case. Um, I, I just find that, you know, um, Paul talks about we see through a mirror darkly or dimly. Um, that seems to allow for some doubt. Um, uh, I, I am intrigued, uh, painfully so, that John the Baptist, who was just so bold to proclaim mm-hmm. Um, here, here he is, the one we've been waiting for. Behold, the Lamb of God. And then later, he's doubting. He's in prison, and he sends a message. Are, are, are you the one, or should we look for someone else? Right. Uh, and then we have that, that great patron saint of doubt, the man who said, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. So um, I, I don't think that that totally would convince someone who's really a, afraid of admitting doubt, but... Um, uh, I, 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 I've seen it work uh, better than insisting I don't have doubt. I, there was a time, I think, when I, you know, I, I tried to sound as so sure. But I, again, I, I think the concept, the category of absolute certainty is beyond human ability. I think that that comes more from a very arrogant, secular, post-enlightenment view of our brains um, so that, I, I don't know if I could make a stronger case, but, yeah. that, but it, it, it helps me tremendously to admit my doubts. I think if I'm, if I'm understanding, Randy, what you're, what you're doing in this, in this book as well, is that when we admit in our highly pluralistic environment where we are constantly bombarded by all kinds of information, arguments against our belief, examples of Christians acting really badly, hmm. those are those are relatively new experiences in human history. Yeah. Most people did not experience their Christian faith with so much challenge to it yeah. externally. Yeah. They had all the inward challenges, I'm sure, of of just of suffering and things like that, but they right. didn't they didn't have the atmosphere. I mean, we even know the question of theodicy does not really arise at the same level. We see it in the scriptures, but it doesn't seem to arise at the same level until the Enlightenment era yeah. with Voltaire and others. Um, so I think that's kind of what we're, we're getting at, that there's that we live in a, in a different environment where going back to the examples that the Bible does not promise you complete and total certainty about everything in here, but it gives you enough certainty to know what is true, namely Jesus Christ and his revealed word, but we can't and don't have to answer every single question with as if no one can ask these questions. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think if we do that, what you're saying is that that makes that opens the door to secularists to step back and say, maybe I'm not so sure either that Christianity is not true or that secularism is the only viable way to look at things. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yes. And it, um, I, I think some of us may have had kind of an all or nothing kind of uh, mindset. You that's know, what I'm like, getting at. Yeah. It's, it's all confident, all true, and you're all wrong with your unchristian beliefs. Yeah. And what I want to say is, well, you know, we, we both have doubts. We both have an incomplete picture. Let's compare our incomplete pictures. I think the Christian one's a whole lot better, but, but I still have unanswered questions. Um, you know, I, I, I think back, I, I, I can't remember if I shared this in the book, but um, I had this, I, I've had this very fun and good long-term friendship with an atheist who's now a retired philosophy professor. We've had some really, really great conversations. But one of our very first conversations was when he said to me, I don't think the Chris, I don't think Christians have a very good answer to the problem of evil. And I said, okay, well, I, I mean, I, it's, it's got some, it's got some incompleteness for me. Um, but so what's the atheist answer for the problem of evil? And that was when he said, you know, yeah. to tell you the truth, I don't think we have a very good one either. Yeah. And I said, okay, so we both have unsatisfying answers. I, I think one, I think mine is better, a whole lot yeah. better, but let's compare our incomplete or unsatisfying answers. And that has sparked I really mean this decades of really, really good conversation between us where we start with, okay, we both have doubts. We both have some incompleteness. By the way, I want to quickly jump in with, I'm thinking of um, Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses of that God has revealed truth to us, but he hasn't revealed everything to us. It says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Yeah. Um, but the things that have been revealed are so that we can live a godly life in this world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff that God hasn't told us yet. Um, and and, he's, and I don't think he's going to in this life. He certainly hasn't in the scriptures. There's still plenty of unanswered questions. Um, but the things he has made clear tip the scales dramatically, I think, in our favor for confident belief even in the midst of some unanswered questions you do share that story it was one of the questions i was going to ask an atheist oh. who had been a muslim right and she was oh. talking about her uncle's death as the mm. reason that mm-hmm. she left islam and then you asked well has your atheism brought you comfort yeah and she said well i haven't even considered that possibility <laughs> that's what i was trying to get that we are on the yeah. defensive as christians about this problem of evil but when yeah. you turn it around and say, what's your explanation? Yeah. All of a sudden you don't realize that there's a more compelling explanation. And I want to clarify also earlier, I, I think I probably my question or explanation could have been seen as being in direct contradiction. For example, to Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Uh, yes. I think it's safe to say that we're as certain as we possibly can of anything that we do not see that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that he was crucified for our sins, and that he's revealed his word to us. You just did a good job of explaining, though, that one thing that we would not be certain of, for example, would be, why am I suffering? 
Yeah. Why did this bad thing happen to me? Well, that is not necessarily revealed to you. Right. But you can still have right. certain faith in God that he is good in those things. Those two things can coexist. That's what I'm trying to get at. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think that that's a very, very powerful argument that we have that's, that's, that's not just a philosophical argument. It's a very real experience. And, right. and so I, I, I tell a prolonged, very painful story in the chapter about suffering, about a friend who, who died and he faced death right there, uh, right in his face. But he had a strong faith in God, in, in Christ, in salvation. And um, so there's a million questions about why did he suffer so much? I mean, it's an excruciating, painful story mm -hmm. that I think back about, especially the last year of his life. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to express, it's hard to find words that express how painful his life was. And yet in the midst of it, he knew for certain he was going to be delivered into a new body. And he had, and he had a, a kind of a, a tremendous peace at the end. There was also a sadness in there that he was leaving this life, but a tremendous peace and still unanswered questions. And that's, that's the promise of the gospel that is so good that it, and it, it's so much better than the unbelieving or the skeptical or the uh, agnostic views. So that's what I was trying to argue in that chapter of, no, I don't have all the answers, but what a source of hope and strength. Yeah. Um, so here, well, let, me, let me say in that chapter, I tried mm -hmm. to say, we don't just need answers to the why questions about pain and suffering. We also need answers to the how questions. How do I get, how do I get through it? How do I find strength in the midst of pain? How do I find joy in the midst of physical struggles or, or disease or grief? Or, and that's where I think the gospel shines. It gives us tremendous answers of how do I find joy and hope in the midst of this? Yeah, I, let me. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna read a couple quotes in here because what you're describing here, Randy, about the about the differences between plausibility and certainty, seem to me one of the most important contributions of this book, and probably are going to reorient a lot of things for different people. So I want to give them a flavor for some of this. You, you mentioned earlier that apologetics is associated by many Christians with the search for proof. As the grounds of search for proof as, as the grounds of our belief, but you write, what if you can't prove God created the world with a sense of order or design, but all the complexity and beauty in the physical universe suggest this is more likely than the conclusion mm -hmm. that all this happened through chaos and chance? Same thing we're talking about here. Helping people to doubt their doubts. Well, if you don't believe in the Christian story, what is your story? And mm -hmm. what are the results? of that story. Which one, which one is better? Which one's more beautiful? Then you also mentioned this, um, plausibility and certainty. Once again, you say, quote, I want to suggest that we can have a high level of confidence that it makes more sense to believe we live in a created world with a personal God than to believe we are nothing more than cosmic accidents. I say this because we treat people with dignity and fairness, or at least we believe we should, 
a common view across the West today, whether people are, I'm saying this now, people are Christians or not. And then back to you, and values like equality and respect cohere better with the Christian view than the naturalistic one. So the book is a good example, like you said earlier, of pre-evangelism, where you're trying to help help skeptics to doubt their doubts, to consider the threshold of plausibility. Um, what did you say earlier? The, the, the maybe or the perhaps or something like that before yes, they say yes, yes. maybe right. yeah, the maybe in there. That's clearly what you're trying to do. And and like you said, that opens up a lot of different possibilities for short term, medium term, and long term conversations with with friends and others um, about on what grounds do we build a life. Um, one last question I had here, Randy, relates to um, the question about. Another another common question we've looked at at apologetics for a long time about what the question of whether all paths lead to God. It doesn't mm. really matter what you believe, the same kind of thing. Um, you talk in part about the differences between Christianity and Islam. And I'm wondering, as we continue into a more pluralistic environment that we've been talking about here, do you still hear that same argument as much as you did before about all paths leading to God? Or now that we're actually surrounded by more Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, is there more of a recognition among so-called secularists that that's actually a very offensive view to hold, <laughs> including toward Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, um, I don't know if I hear that question less. I, I, I think you're probably right. Uh, I do. Um, there may be a little bit of a harsher edge to the question, even though people are not thinking it. It's like, well, how in the world could you be so narrow and sure. exclusive? Yeah. But but you're right. We do have these these different religions represented all around us, you know, down on our same street, um, within the same office part, you know, the, within five desks of us. Um, so so it it can become a better conversation if we're willing to step into the uncomfortable part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that we can sort of flip the question on its head. It is right. interesting. People want to say, well, you know, these are all the same. Well, no, wait a minute. Let's 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 talk a little bit about Buddhism and Judaism. Right. You know, if you say that they're the same, Sounds to me like we're not really looking very well at Buddhism or Judaism. And in fact, we may be distorting both right. and we may be insulting. I mean, that that is the argument of, um, oh, golly, I've forgotten his name now. The, the religious studies professor up in Boston, Stephen Prothero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote a whole book saying these different religions are not the same. And he's not a religious person. <laughs> right. He says, but but to argue that they're the same he says it is. It's just, he says it's simply not true, but it is insulting. Um, I mean, if you say to a Jewish person and a Muslim person, you know, you guys, you actually believe the same things. No, you you obviously don't know what either one of us think. So, <laughs> right. so we're trying to be more understanding and more truthful about these differences. And I think the differences help again shine the spotlight on the gospel that, oh, this this one's really different and it's really good. Oh. That's a great that's a great place to, to stop it right there. Um, the book is Questioning Faith, Indirect Journeys of Belief Through Terrains of Doubt. My guest has been Randy Newman, the author, and uh, this is a new book from Crossway and the Gospel Coalition. Randy, thanks for joining me today on Gospel Bound. Oh, it's been great. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.